What a great day. This is the Reboot Sunday. I'm going to give you a couple of ideas about it, first of all. I get to preach, first of all, on my most favorite subject in the world, and that's the word on the first poll, grace. Um, I'm going to preach today on grace because that's the foundation of everything in your personal spiritual life. It's the only hope you have ever uh, of ever having any kind of hope in your future and joy and peace and all the things God's offered you. But it's also the the strategy of our church is listed on these polls. And every Sunday, you're going to hear me teach on one of these. Grace, growth, gifts, and then the last poll is giving. And uh, yes, we will talk about tithing on that Sunday. So if you're non-tither, um, you know, if you struggle with that, if you don't want to hear pastor preach to you about tithing, uh, you could skip that Sunday, but it just means you have to start at the first poll again. So, um, but that's really how our lives work. And, and giving is not just about tithing, by the way. Uh, giving is about giving of yourself, giving of your whole life to God. And as you mature, these are not just strategies for our church for us to, we, we evaluate our church based on these four statements right here. And, and the, the strategy that I want you to understand is not just for a church, it's for you personally. Have you ever trusted in the grace of Christ? You're gonna, we're gonna ask you that real clear in a few minutes when you see that. Uh, have you ever, have you ever understood the grace that Christ has for you? And if you have, are you, first Peter says you should grow in grace. And the Bible says in Peter, you also, you have these gifts that God's given you to be used to express that grace. And then ultimately, if you're using your gifts and you're growing in that grace, then you're going to be an extremely giving person in every aspect of your life, whether it's your time, your talent, your treasures, your resources, um, you're going to be a giver. So we're going to just walk you through that strategy this month. Um, and we want you to hear every bit of it because it's the, it's the foundation of our church. Now, why are we calling this Reboot? Well, I'll tell you exactly why we're calling it Reboot. Um, I, I read a, a book um, a few months ago called um, The Insanity of God. If you've been to the Christian bookstore, it's plastered everywhere because it kind of hit the market about six months ago. And I heard an interview on the radio of the guy that wrote the book, Nick Ritkin. That's not his real name because he serves God in an area of the country, in the area of the world where you don't give your real name because there are terrorists that would take his life. And uh, so <laughs> uh, the book's written by a different guy, but that's the name he goes by in his book. And it's a fantastic book. Highly recommend you just download it on your Amazon or uh, your Kindle or something or, or just go buy the book and read it. It will challenge you at all kinds of levels. Um, but one of the stories in it that, that grabbed me months and months ago that caused me to say our church needs that is this story. When when Nick, Nick was 11, he was asked to go to a Baptist church um, with his. He, he was a. He said him and his wife were both PKs. Y'all know what a PK is? I have three of them. Say it again. Yes, he says his wife was a PK preacher's kid and he was a PK pagan kid. Um, before he knew Christ, he was he was raising a family that was totally unsaved. Totally lost, totally out there, and he'd not been to church till he was 11 years old. First time in church, 11 years old. A relative takes him to this large Baptist church where she attends for the Easter service. And as an 11 year old, he sat in the pews and he listened to the minister tell the story of Jesus and his life. Told about Jesus uh, healing people and Jesus walking with his disciples and teaching all these truths about love and forgiveness and grace and acceptance. And he said, man, my heart was pounding. I'm like, that's the neatest thing I've ever heard in my life. He's 11 years old. 
And he said, then he told about him, him, uh, blessing children, calling children into his lap and blessing the children and, and ministering to people everywhere. And he fed the 5,000. The minister just told a summary of Jesus' life and it got this little boy's attention just like that. That's why we tell the stories to the kids upstairs all the time because those stories are important. And this little 11 year old heart was just enthralled with this Jesus character he'd never heard about. <clears throat> so the pastor said, but there's some bad news. He said the people that he came to love and to show grace and kindness to turned on him and they actually voted for him to be executed. Now he said at that point, he said his heart just stopped. He's like, wait, 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 wait. Wrong story. That, that guy, that guy can't be executed. What, what did he do wrong? And so he said his brain's just trying to process the execution of a guy as good as he just heard about. He's like, why would they do that to him? And, and the, the minister told about his execution, and he said he sat there, tears streaming down his face, going, man, that's wrong. And he said, I just want to stand up and go, y'all are wrong for doing that. He said he almost couldn't contain himself. And then the minister said, but there's some good news in all this. He's like, how could there be good news? He, he's dying on a cross. He's been beaten and bloodied. Why is there good news in that? And then he tells about his death and his burial. Of course, it's Easter Sunday at this Baptist church, so what's he going to tell about next? You tell me. The resurrection. So he, the pastor explains with all this enthusiasm about this resurrection, and Nick said, man, my heart leaped out of my chest. I'm like, yeah, you tell him. That's right. Yeah, go. You know, he's all rooting for Jesus because he's like, that's the coolest thing in the world. And he said he's just about to jump out of his pew and cheer like you're at a ball game. And he looked around. And he said, nobody was moving. He said, most people weren't even paying attention to the story. He said, the guy next to him was just reading a hymnal, pulled a hymnal out of the pew and was just flipping through the hymnal, real casual. He said, he looked down the pew and their, their mamas scribbling with their babies and coloring with them. There were other, other people just flipping through their Bible like the story didn't have any significance at all to them. And that's when it occurred to, to Nick at 11 years old. He was like, oh, it's a story. It's not real. And he decided at 11, none of that was real. Now listen to me. Shame on us. Okay? We can't let our faith get that old or that cold. We just can't. And so I'm saying to us as a church, God... I don't ever want an 11-year-old kid or a 5-year-old kid to sit in this church and not feel something when we when we experience the truth about the cross, when we experience grace. I do not want our church to be the church that some kid could look around and go, well, they don't care either. It must just be a story. He was in college when he accepted Christ. By the way, his wife was the one that he started dating. And she's like, we aren't getting serious till you get serious with God. And he's like, oh, I am serious with God. He's like, no, you're not. And so she pushed him through church to get him to where he needed to be in his faith in, in college. But think about all those years. All those years he had to serve God that some church missed, and it wasn't on the pastor, I'm just telling y'all. <laughs> it wasn't on the pastor or the worship team or the song leader. It was on the people sitting in the pews who had zero heart for what the real story of life and the real story of grace is all about. 
Okay, so I'm just telling you right now, and I know y'all are going, man, we should have buckled up before this one. <laughs> yes, you should. I would recommend you buck. If we should have installed seat belts with the new lighting, we should have put some seat belts in because I'm coming. This is Grace Day, and I don't want us to be that church. So, so what what reboots all about is it's time to reset your heart, to reestablish your faith, to to reconnect with God. You can say it in about a hundred different. Uh, synonyms. I, I've written them out for months now. We're reestablishing and refocusing and retraining and retooling and recommitting. I'm literally asking you to say, what was it like? What was it like the very first time it clicked in my head? I am not bound for hell anymore. I'm going to heaven because a guy who loved me more than life itself died on a bloody beaten cross was buried and put in a tomb and rose three days later. What was it like when you first figured that out? When, whew, I'm not going to hell anymore. And somebody loves me that much. That energy is not supposed to go away, by the way. It's not supposed to get old. Remember what, remember what John writes in the Revelation to, to the seven churches? To one of the churches, he says, you need to return to your first Love. There's a great song, a great song. And if we'd had 10 more minutes before church started, I'd have made Kurt come to my office and practice with me on my guitar. And we'd have done it, just me and him would have done it. But it's a great song by Keith Green, one of my favorite guys ever to write music. And he was part of the Jesus Revolution of the 70s, died in a tragic plane accident real young. And uh, he was just a prop. He was a man on fire for God. When he got saved, he got radically saved. And and Keith Green wrote this song called "My Eyes Are Dry." Now I'm telling you, if his eyes were ever dry, it was little tiny seasons in his very young life. Because when you read his writings and you read his life story, he was just zealous for God. And it says, "My eyes are dry. My faith is old. My heart is hard. My prayers are cold." And I know how I ought to be alive to you, dead to me. But what can be done for an old heart like mine to soften it up with oil and wine? The oil is you, your spirit of love. Please wash me anew in the wine of your love. And I'm praying that for our church today. As a matter of fact, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and uh, take a breath for a minute. I'm watching all of you with your... Mouths gaped open because I'm coming at you really fast. So just bow your heads for a minute. If you feel like your faith just needs to be reset, rebooted, refreshed, if it's old and dry faith and your heart's hard, now's the time just to tell the Lord it's okay. He's, it's not a surprise to Him. He would love for you to admit it. Father, we don't need old faith. It doesn't help us. We don't need dry faith. We want to see living, life-filled, grace-filled grace faith in this church. And God, for some of us that have been saved since I was in the second grade, it goes back so far. But I've had so many experiences with you that are real that I can draw from. So I pray you would freshen us up today, Lord. Let us experience the story of grace New and fresh today. Let us experience you fresh in this service today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I almost told the the, uh, the board and the elder we were just going to 
cancel church for a few weeks and restart. That was my refresh moment. You need to restart everything. It's like I, I wanted you to come in today, kind of, and that's why you see so many changes. We had so many people working this week to, you can imagine putting these lights up there, how much fun that was and how hard that was. Some of you were here every night this week trying to make all that accomplished and the new sign out front and the banners and, and the media stuff in the hallways. <clears throat> um, but you, I wanted you to come in today and almost say, you know what? It's like my first time ever at this church. It's like the first church meeting of our church. And I want you to greet one another and go, hey, what's your name? Oh, really? I didn't know. You know, what's your name? Oh, you're Miss Ann Watson. Well, it's good to meet you, Miss Ann. You know, I know you've been here, you know, since the, nearly the beginning, but it, truth is, I want us to come in fresh and new. So next Sunday, you know, meet some people, people that you may not normally meet, and let's, let's treat ourselves like we're starting this church fresh and new. Can you do that? Will you do that for me? This means yes. This means start over because we're not getting it. Okay, good. You're good. I didn't think you were going to do that. So grace is this crazy, paradoxical, confusing and beautiful and bewildering truth of your faith and my faith. And I'm going to express that to you in as many ways as I can today. Philip Yancey says grace is the last great word. Oh, you don't have a handout, do you? Well, doggone it, that's because I want you to pay attention. So, But I really want you to, to, to hear the message today. So you OCD people, you know, take, take some medicine and you'll be okay for a few minutes till we get through this. All right? So, but, but Philip Yancey says, Grace is the last great word. It's unmerited favor. It's unmitigated kindness. It's undeserved love for us. Some people hear about this unconditional love of God and they go... It's not for me, man. I, I'm not worthy. I had an uncle, an uncle that died in the hospital of cancer who never would ask Jesus to be his Savior because he said, man, I haven't lived a life worthy. I, he, I don't deserve him. He shouldn't mess with me. And he said, you know what? Grace isn't for me. It's not for me. And some people go, you know, God doesn't really know me or he wouldn't love me like that, right? So there's there's people on that extreme. Then there's other people that say, Man, I'll take all the grace I can get. I love grace. Grace, 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 grace. Grace is the most wonderful thing that ever happened to me. But then, on the extreme, they say, it's also like a free to sin card. I don't ever have to worry about my sins or I don't have to resist sin or wrestle with sin. I don't even have to think about sin because even if I sin, there's grace. Right? And so there's this other extreme. There's the extreme of, you know, I don't deserve it, so I'm not even going to accept it. Then there's the, hey, I love it because I can do anything I want. I can live my life in complete abandonment to, to my flesh. That's not right either. As a matter of fact, that's a huge violation of grace just like this. Not accepting it is a huge violation of grace. If somebody dies, gives their life for you, you should honor their life by saying, I'm giving my life back to you now. Right? But if somebody gives, gives their life to you, you should also say, I am truly going to find a way, going to find a way to live my life in honor of the things that you honor. Some people get it all wrong, and grace is the greatest gift that's ever given. And that's why, you, and next week you should hear this song called The Orphans of God. It's going to be our special next week. It was our special this week till we had one of our singers get sick. Those of you that have your phones and text all through service instead of pay attention to me, you can text Mary Johnson who's sick and say, hey, sorry you're sick. Pastor just told us in church you were sick and I could text you. And you can do that. But some people um, some people hear this song says, uh, grace was meant 
for lives like this. Well, what does that mean for lives like this? I'm going to tell you what it means. Grace is needed because of depravity. And depravity is very, very real. Depravity is in every one of us. We, we are a group of very depraved people. You won't hear that in many churches, so if you're offended by that, there's plenty of churches you can get into that will never say that word to you. Okay? But I'm telling you, we're going to remind ourselves of that because grace is needed because of the depravity of man and the depravity of every man. We are a depraved group of people, not just one of us, but every one of us. Paul says it clearly in Romans chapter 3. You guys know this verse. You guys know this verse. Romans chapter 3. There is none righteous. No, not one. There is no one who understands. No one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have gone... Uh, uh, Together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. I'd like you to read those first, that first line and the first word of the second line with me out loud. This is group participation, okay, and say it like you mean it. Ready? There is no one righteous, not even none. None. You can put Billy Graham and Mother Teresa, we could sit them in the back of the church and they'd have to read the exact same sentence because that's God's honest truth about us. There's none of us who have any righteousness in us at all. None. No righteousness. I want to show you two lists of words. Yeah, just watch, look at these words. Evil, wretched, wicked, corrupt, debased, unrighteous, iniquity, debauchery, heinous, nefarious, and fiendish. You don't see those words anymore. You don't hear those words in churches anymore. You don't hear people talk about those words. You don't read them in writing anymore. You know why? Our culture hates that concept. Our culture doesn't want us to be those people. And so when terrible things like this whole uh, child that was this this 18-year-old boy that was abused, a uh, handicapped boy that was abused this weekend, when it happens, the media is trying to spin something that was very evil, something that was very debased, something that was full of iniquity, they're trying to spin it in ways that you and I can go, oh, that's the thing, I see. Rather than, rather than being sick to our stomach. It should make us sick to our stomach. You know why? It's sin. And every time there's a bad crime, or even a non-bad crime, just crime, it's sin. S-I-N, sin. Now here's another list of words. This is what it will sound like. When you hear the news stories about all that stuff that happened this weekend, this is what they're going to say. Well, they have behavioral disorders. Really. You know what that's called? Sin. Sin. They're compulsive personality types. You know what that's called? Say it out loud. Sin. I'm sorry if you're a compulsive personality person. Everybody in the room is, by the way. Everybody in this room has some compulsion somewhere, and your personality is bent on that compulsion. And some of it's pure flesh and it's, now you're getting it, okay? Unproductive personal habits. That's called lazy sin. There you go. <laughs> or teenagers, sorry. Um, <laughs> sorry. Sorry, kids, really. I love y'all very much, but y'all know, y'all know, y'all know I meant that. So, all right, here we go. There's deviant desires, also called unhealthy lifestyles, non-typical lifestyles. What is a typical lifestyle anyway? Unconventionally motivated people. Those are lazy people called sin. Sinners. We are sinners. Every one of us is a sinner. Would you please look at your neighbor and boldly, confidently tell them, I'm a sinner. Look at him. All right, you got to go both ways now. Some of you have two neighbors. Tell them. 
You're a sinner. Okay? Well, you know what that means? It means you're going to hell. That's what it means. Unless. Unless grace is real. Unless grace is real, you're all going to hell. And I'm going with you. You know why grace is so beautiful? Because it takes the ugliness of all of that and says, I will erase that from your record and offer you my righteousness as Christ the Son of God. There is no way for you to make it into heaven if Christ doesn't take all of that on Himself and turn into that ugly person that's filled with sin and sacrifices life on your behalf. And that is what we call grace. The 19th century Russian novelist Ivan uh, Turgenev wrote about this, about this about himself. Now listen to what he says about himself. I don't know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I do know what the heart of a good man is like. And it's terrible. He wrote it about himself. It's terrible. That's why we need grace. And that's why we need grace. Alex, Alexander uh, Solenheitsen wrote, If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. He's saying, you know, if evil was contained in a few people, or even a bunch of people in a society, and you go, hey, the evil people need to go over here, and the good people need to go over here. And then we'll deal with the evil people in some way that eliminates them from all of our troubles, right? If only that were true. Here's what he says, though. It's a great quote. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. There are no good people, and there are no good people in heaven, by the way. I hear that all the time. Well, he was just a good man. He's going to heaven. No, no, no. There are no good people in heaven. Everybody in heaven was a sinner filled with sin and bound for heaven only by the grace of God. That's why we celebrate grace. That's why when somebody's teaching on grace, you should be on the edge of your seat like an 11-year-old Nick going, yes, I'm saved by grace. That's awesome. You know, rather than going, oh yeah, grace, I don't know about grace. Right? That's why we got to change the way we experience that. So let me give you three quick stories to help you understand grace. God's grace touches the untouchable. Now, I used this story a few weeks ago when we did the series on uh, Jesus on the love languages, and we talked about how Jesus fulfills every love language, and one of those is, is physical touch. And there's a leper in Mark chapter 1. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Mark 1, verse 40, it says this, A man with leprosy came to him, begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, he had to keep six feet away from everybody. If it was a windy day, he had to keep ten feet away from everybody. Okay, And so this man is shouting to Jesus from his knees with his leprosy, probably missing a bunch of fingers and his nose and his ears and all the extremities that first begin to rot when you have leprosy. Verse 41 says about Jesus, Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. Not how he had to do that, by the way. This man's ten feet away. And he's begging from his knees. If you are willing, I know you could heal me. Jesus would go, you're healed. You stay right there, buddy. Because you can't get around me, but you're healed. That's not how Jesus did it. Jesus approached him. He put his hand on a leprous man. 
which means he's taking his disease on him. He's saying all that defeats you and all that destroys your life, all of that I'm willing to embrace right here, right now, and set you free from all of it. That's pretty awesome, by the way. Jesus literally touched the leprous man. And, and he's willing to touch untouchable people. You know, there's a bunch of people like my uncle who think they're just untouchable. You know, I can't get around you. I can't get, I'm bad for everybody. And, and I sure don't need God because God, you know, God, God can't work with somebody like this. That's just not true. Grace is for everybody. Grace touches the untouchable. And Jesus was willing to infect himself with all that destroyed that man to set him free. Just like he's willing to infect himself with all that destroys us, which is our sin. Our sin infects us and it's a disease according to Isaiah. And Jesus says, I'll take it all. And he embraces us with his grace and he goes to the cross and he pays for it. Does that make sense to you? That's a happy moment. That's a moment where Nick, Nick looks around and goes, are they getting this? Is this a story? What's making it? Right? So here's a side note. Okay. Jesus tells him, look at the end of the story. Let me read the end of the story to you here. Um, Jesus says, um, go and show yourself to the priest. Jesus gives him a strong warning. Um, see that you tell no one about this, but go and show yourself to the priest. And he's got all this process he has to do in the Jewish cultural rites to, to get back into a family, to be part of society again. He's got to prove to the priest he doesn't have leprosy, so he's not an outcast anymore. He's got to go do all that. Jesus is like, hey, go take care of all that. And don't tell anybody what happened. Just the priest. You and the priest worked this out. But it says instead he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. So much so that Jesus could no longer enter the town openly, but stayed outside in a lonely place. So the people had to come to him from everywhere. Now what's the problem with helping this leper? Is He is literally untouchable. His disease will kill you. But Jesus chose to do that. And this leper... okay. When he was truly cleansed, he could not contain his conversation. He could not contain his conversation. So I'm going to just admit to you right here, if you can contain the conversation about what Jesus has done for you, you may not totally get poll number one grace. You just may not. You may need to rebaptize yourself and rethink it all about grace for your life and get grace in sat saturated into every cell of your life. Because truly, if you get grace, you cannot contain. Jesus says, hey, don't tell anybody. He's like, yeah, right, got it. And it says he told everybody. So much so that Jesus couldn't even go into town anymore. I mean, he's just blah, 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 blah. Now, we'll blah, 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 blah about all kinds of stuff, won't we? But what about the grace and the Jesus came to us? and changed our lives dramatically. When grace really gets a hold of you, it should pour forth in every conversation. God's grace redeems unredeemable people. John chapter 4 and John chapter 8 tell about two different women, both adulterers. The first one's a, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. She is a rude Samaritan adulterous woman. She's got five husbands that she's had, and the man she's living with is currently not her husband. And she's just got a chip on her shoulder a mile wide. Jesus just asked her for a drink of water at the well. It's just her and Jesus. And all she has to do is go, sure, buddy, here you go. Hope you enjoy that. Not what she does. She almost starts a fight with every sentence. I've taught you through this. So I'm just going to hit the highlights. But you read John chapter 4. She almost tries to fight with Jesus with everything he says. How is it that you, being a Jew, would ask of me, a Samaritan? You know, lying in the sand. There's we don't, we aren't supposed to talk to you. How's it you being a man would ask me a woman? 
We're not supposed to talk to each other. You worship in this mountain. We worship over there. We're different. You know, we're not supposed to be doing this. Jesus keeps on asking her. He keeps on talking to her about this living water. And he tells her this, you are not great. She says, you're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Um, yes, she, he is. <laughs> Who gave us this well. He drank of it himself. His sons, Jacob's cows, drank from this well. Can't you just see Jesus going, ooh, ah, I didn't know that or I wouldn't have talked to you. Like, who knew there were there were cows of Jacob that actually drank here? Well, shame on me for even speaking to you about, you know, who I am. <laughs> That's just nuts, right? Jesus says, everybody who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. Here's her grace moment. Okay, but the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. He goes, don't you just want to satisfy the thirst of your soul for grace? Don't you want all this sin that's eating up your life and destroying it? Don't you want to just be filled with that? And she's like, hmm, I don't know. You know, we're, we're really not getting along here, are we? And Jesus goes, hey, go get your husband. That's when everything changed. She goes, well, uh, uh, I'm not married. He goes, well, rightfully you've said so. You know, I have no husband. She goes, he goes, yeah, that's correct. You know, you've had five, you know, and you've messed all that up and now you're on the sixth, but you didn't even marry him. Something's all wrong with all that. And then she goes, oh, I perceive you're a prophet. Good girl. <laughs> now, now you got a clue, right? But Jesus is going, aren't you thirsty for something to satisfy your very soul? Wouldn't you like your soul? To be changed. And at some point, it clicks in this adulterous woman. It clicks in her head. And she takes on this, this man that's been extremely gracious through all of her rude misbehavior and never bringing him a cup of water, by the way. He's still thirsty. But she's not anymore. She's found grace and she runs back into town. Now, what's wrong with talking to this woman? Why in the world would Jesus invest in her? She's got baggage, baggage, and more baggage in her past, in her present, right at the well. She's filled with bitterness. What's wrong with all of that? Well, she's not the kind of person you would associate with, and she's sure not somebody you would send out on your company as your, as your company representative. You're not going to take this woman and go, hey, would you represent my company out in the public? Would you? You go, I'd like, I'd like you to work for air specialty. Or I'd like you to work for water you surveying. You know, I'd like you to work for, for councilman or for Danny's, you know, business. I mean, I'd like you to be part of, comp I'd like you to be a representative. I know you got all this mess in your life and you're a complete disaster. And by the way, when you talk to people, you're a little bit edgy and rude. Like a lot. When you talk to Jesus, you're rude. Come on. We don't want you on our team. Jesus goes, oh, I do. I really do. And so he goes, he explains to her whole deal. She goes into town and she says, y'all got to come meet this guy. You know why? She couldn't contain herself. Once grace took hold of her heart, she could not contain herself. And she goes, gets the whole town, which she has lots of friends, lots of relationships. She's been to lots of parties. She's the party girl. She knows everybody. The Bible says in, in John chapter 4 that she brought the whole town of Samaria back to the well for a three-day revival. And it actually says these words in the Bible. And the whole town accepted Christ, trusted in Him because of the words He spoke and because of what she believed. Just like that, she, became, she went from crazy, messed up, rude, immoral, sinful, debased woman to missionary for Jesus. 
because grace hit her. And she changed. And she went, oh, i got to go get some people and tell them about this. This is awesome. This is awesome. You know what we do when grace hits us? We go, hey, we should, uh, I, should, uh, I should make a note in my Bible about that grace. That'd be good. I might actually think about that tomorrow sometime. But we don't go running out, do we? Why don't we go running out? Why don't we go tell somebody, grace is amazing. There's even a song called Amazing Grace. It's really cool. The reason it's called Amazing Grace is because it is amazing. I mean, it's unbelievable what grace can do for a person. John chapter 8, the adulterous woman caught in the very act of sin. She's in her lover's bed when the Pharisees kick the door open, drag her to the temple, throw her in front of Jesus, and say this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. She deserves to die. Moses in the law says she deserves to die. What do you say? He's doodles in the ground for a little while. Really ticks off the Pharisees while he just very makes them be more than patient about the whole conversation. And he stands up and he says, that's true, the law says that. It's okay to stone her, as long as you're not guilty of her sin. You know what he said to the whole room of people, the Gentile outer court where Jesus is teaching in the temple that early morning, birds are chirping and their smell of fresh bread being baked in the Jerusalem streets. And Jesus says, you're all sinners. You're all sinners. Feel free to throw a stone, but you're all sinners. We're going to start stoning each other. It's going to get really bloody in here. If you're going to take somebody out and stone them, we all, let's pick a line. Somebody's got to go last. It's okay to stone her as long as you're not guilty of this sin. See, they threw a sinner at the feet of the Redeemer whose whole life is to say, there's grace right here. There's grace that changes everything. So when they all leave and it says Jesus stood her up and he looks at her and he says, woman, where are your accusers? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. Jesus says, I don't condemn you either. Go from now on. Sin no more. Change. Change. Grace has to change us or it never caught a hold of us. Now I'm willing to bet when you meet her in heaven, there's some awesome stories about that lady. I'm willing to bet that lady changed, changed, because she was 100% deserving to die, 100% guilty. She was 100% deserving to die. In that temple, it was her last few breaths. They were just going to drag her to the edge of town outside the gates of the city because it's nicer there to kill people. We don't do it in the city. That would be rude. So we take them outside. Then we just throw a bunch of rocks at her till she dies. And that was her whole future was right there, that short, that quick. That's all that's going to happen. And then Jesus shows up with grace and says, I don't condemn you. By the way, there's only one person in the temple that could throw a stone at her. There's only one. Because he had no sin. There was no sin in him. He could have said, let me take you to the edge of town. I'll, I'll, it'll be merciful, but I get to put you to death because I'm the sinless one. They're not. That's not what he did. He said, I'm going to, like the leper, he said, I'm going to take your disease and your sin into my life, but would you please, please stop sinning. Go and sin no more. You understand how grace works? It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful, but it's got this, this side to it that's just hard to get your head around. It doesn't make sense. Grace redeems unredeemable people. And it helps 
people that are far from God find something fresh and new in their life that's different than anything they've ever experienced. The New Testament has 155 references to grace. 155. 130 of them are by a guy named the Apostle Paul. Paul, Paul. Paul of Tarsus. And his original name was Saul. And he was a bounty hunter. He chased down Christians like us. People that believed in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. He chased them down. He found them. And on behalf of his Jewish heritage and, his, and the Jewish energy of the day... He drugged them to courts, had them tried and convicted of following Jesus rather than the Jewish law. And he had some of them executed. They were stoned to death. They were thrown in prison. Their families were in prison. Children were in prison. All because Paul, as his own testimony says, he was zealous. He was, he was a zealous blasphemer of the things of God and of all this grace that Jesus had taught. And then one day... He's on a Damascus road. Acts chapter 9 records all this. He's on a Damascus road and he's walking along. And Jesus decides to visit with Paul. There's this loud thunder. The soldiers that were with him on this little journey to go find more Christians. The soldiers hear it as thunder. Paul feels it as a lightning bolt. He's blinded by it. And he hears this voice that says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, Jesus was in heaven at the time. He's persecuting us. Jesus says, that's the same thing. When you persecute them, you persecute me. That's all. We're the same. That's how much Jesus loves you. When you're persecuted, He's persecuted. When you go through hard times, He goes through hard times. He's with you all the way, right? So He just wakes Paul up with His lightning bolt and goes, Hey, buddy, what are you doing persecuting me? It's a grace awakening moment for the Apostle Paul. He met Jesus probably in the only way that would ever convert a guy like Paul with a bolt of lightning and a conversation that says, I want you to stop kicking against this grace because Paul was that guy going, man, I'm not any of that. I'm not any of that. I want you to embrace it. And so when Paul becomes discipled in his faith, he writes 13 letters that God says, those are my words, not yours. You're so close to me, I can write words through your pen that are my words. They're God-breathed words, Paul. 13 New Testament letters. 130 references to grace. Ephesians chapter 3 is one of them. I'd love for you to turn there with me as we look at the last verse of the day. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. <clears throat> For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, Ephesians 3, verse 1, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote it before in brief. And Paul's really saying at the end of this, there's this mystery of grace that God showed me. Now, it took a lightning bolt and a little bit of blindness and a little bit of help from my friends to get there. But God showed me this grace. And I got it. And it was this mystery and this revelation that I got. And he says, so I, Paul, am now a, what's the word? I am a prisoner 
of Christ. I'm a prisoner of Christ. Paul, by the way, was always something of Christ. When he had his grace awakening moment, Paul died to himself. And every time he writes anything from that point on, he's something of Christ. I'm a prisoner of Christ. I'm a servant of Christ. I'm an apostle of Christ. I'm a slave of Christ in one version. I'm a minister of Christ. And in Philippians, he says, I am alive only by Christ and for Christ. It's the only reason I live is Christ. Christ, 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 Christ. He was a Christ-centered... I love Dallas Willard says, he was a Christ-intoxicated man. He was intoxicated by Christ. It just was all in his system and it oozed out of his system all the time. He's something of Christ. Isn't that beautiful how he says that? And then he says in this version, or in this verse, verse 2, if you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me, he says, I'm a steward of God's grace. It's an Old Testament word, by the way. It's a really old word. Joseph in the Old Testament was a steward. A steward is a guy that's entrusted to care for somebody else's most valuable stuff. And in that culture, a rich man would say, I've, I've raised this man for a long time. He's served me. He's been my servant for years and years and years. He loves my kids like they're his own. So I'm going to let him steward all my stuff and I don't have to worry about my stuff anymore. I don't have to worry about my family anymore. He's got this. And if something happens to me, especially while I'm away on a trip, if something happens to me, he is the steward of my stuff. Okay? Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just... I don't want to freak you out, but um, I'll just do it this way. One of my most precious possessions, by the way, is this guitar. Um, Seagull, uh, 800-year-old piece of wood right here on the front of it. And uh, all of my guitar buddies will tell you, once you play this, it's like the coolest, coolest guitar ever. Um, it's got this resonant sound. Gabe was at the soundboard years ago. We were working out the system, and, and he was trying to figure out how to turn it down. And I said, I don't even have it plugged in. He was at the back wall saying, man, that thing resonates in this room. I said, I know, it's amazing. This, this was a gift to me from a church. My other guitar was stolen. My $100 guitar was stolen. So they made this a gift to me and uh, helped me get a new guitar, and I've had it for years. Guitars are like friends, by the way. Um, when you play a guitar for a long time, it's like one of your best friends, and you don't want to let go of it, and you hold it at night, and it just means the world to you, right? That's, I, I know it's hard to understand. If you're not a guitar player, but if you're a guitar player, it makes good sense, right? So if, if I were going to ask you to steward something, see, I would have to come along and find somebody and say, I want you, Kenny... Be very careful, son. This guy that breaks most things in our church someday. This, this is faith right here in action. Kenny, I want you to steward that guitar for me. Right? Now, that's, that's important. He's going to hang on to it carefully, aren't you? He's going to steward my guitar for me. See, I just pretendingly gave that away to make sure that you heard that word, right? I want it back in a minute. But I just gave him something that was great value to me. Right? All right, so so let me take it one more level. Josh, come here. Yeah, pick a parent. No, I'm kidding. So 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 listen, listen. If I were to if I were to just walk down the aisle with Josh and go, I need you to, somebody to steward this. 
This is my number one son. Sorry, Caleb, number two. <laughs> this is my most precious son, okay? I've told you before, in whom I'm well pleased. I love Josh, okay? But if I were to steward him to you, it means one of you, Danny, you've raised a bunch of boys, okay? You'd hardly even notice he was at your house, buddy. <laughs> And by the way, he doesn't eat much currently, so we're working on that. So, right? We're working on that. But see, I, can you imagine? Here's what Jesus did. Jesus said, Paul? Yeah. Let me take the guitar back to you. Put my guitar back up on. I was, I was going to bring my truck keys in, but I left them on my desk, and I love my truck, so. <clears throat> yeah. I'm not giving it to a Chevy guy for nothing. Sorry. You can, just, you can just stop that right there. There's some Ford truck guys here that I would steward my truck to. <laughs> but you understand what, what Paul's saying. Paul says, I'm a steward of His grace. Christ gave me grace at the Damascus Road. Bam. And I'm different. And I'm so different now. I'm going to be intoxicated with that grace. I'm literally going to be a trafficker of grace. You know, the people in our, in our community that traffic drugs, they traffic drugs. You know, there, there's, there's the interstate thing they've been, you know, there's a lot of good ministries working now to try to overcome this, this sex trafficking that goes on on the interstate now with young, young kids, young girls, right? They traffic in it. You know what we traffic in? Grace. Grace. And you're not supposed to be able to stop doing that, by the way. You're not supposed to be able to stop. Once grace gets a hold of you, it should sweep you off your feet and literally make you a trafficker of grace. Where you just can't, it comes out of every conversation. At some point in a conversation, you have to say, oh, I gotta tell you something really amazing to me. Once I was lost, now I'm found. Once I was blind, now I can see. I'm a trafficker in grace. So I'm going to give you four words to close with about this grace that you're supposed to be stewarding today. Everybody that knows Christ as your Savior should be a steward of Christ. Grace is bold. It's a very bold love because it loves unlovable people. Grace is beautiful. And you got to admit, when somebody shows grace to you, it's beautiful. And by the way, at our Bible study tonight, for the next four weeks, we've got a Sunday night study that will do this same study, only deeper and more fun. But tonight, we're gonna, you're going to hear some stories about grace in your own lives. You're going to share your own stories of grace. If you've ever had somebody show you grace when you were in huge trouble, that's a beautiful place to talk about. Grace is bewildering because guys like Jeffrey Dahmer who had this horrible life of crime, completely uh, debased, sinful life filled with iniquity, lured children into his home and killed them. Right When he was in prison, just before he was beat to death by prisoners because the guards let a, left the door open for that to happen, some people went into the prison from uh, Chuck Colson's ministries and introduced him to Christ. And he's on tape saying the same prayer you and I say when we come to Christ. And just like that, a life filled with sin stops and grace takes over. 
And days later, he's beat to death in prison. And we can all just sit here judgingly say, oh, he deserved every bit of that. But he got grace. And I promise you, when he showed up in heaven, there was this thief on the cross guy that's been there a lot longer than him that had had a terrible life and grace hit him when he was hanging next to Jesus and said, hey, everybody stop picking on that guy. Truly you are the son. And he looks at him and he says, will you remember me when you, in your kingdom, when you enter into your kingdom? Jesus goes, oh, so you get that I got a kingdom? Today you'll be with me in paradise. And you know that guy, the thief on the cross, when he gets to heaven, people go, how'd you get here? He goes, man, you're not going to believe this story. I guarantee you Jeffrey Dahmer is the first guy. that that's, I, I think Jesus sends the thief on the cross to guys like him to go, yeah, I know. It's amazing grace, isn't it? It's grace. It's that beautiful. I told you this story a while back. During World War II, there were a few places on earth that could be described as hell on earth. They were called Jewish concentration camps. They were run by the German Third Reich. At the end of July 1941, during World War II, a man escaped from Auschwitz. I've walked to the grounds of Auschwitz, and uh, it's a very hallowed, hallowed place where millions of Jews lost their lives at the hand of the uh, Germans. But at, at Auschwitz in 1941, the Nazi uh, commandant um, had this rule that if one man escapes from Auschwitz, ten men in Auschwitz have to die. And ten are executed. So ten prisoners are picked at random. So one man had escaped, or so they had thought. By the way, the story is that nobody ever really escaped. The guards had miscounted. Um, so all the men are called out of the barracks as bags of bones, and they're lined up in orderly ranks as per the German guards' instructions. Within the ranks is a man named uh, Francis Grinalchek. He's 41 years old, and he's terrified. He's thinking to himself, out of the hundreds, I just have to escape being ten called. And he fears his name as each one is called. The first name, second name, the third name, not his. Seven more names out of hundreds. Don't let my name be called. Seventh name, eighth name. As each name is called, he's relieved. He's still safe. Two left. The ninth name is called. And then they call the tenth name, Granalchek. And he falls to the ground. He collapses from the sound of his own name. And he cries out and he begs the Nazi commandant, my wife, my children at home, please, sir, I have a family. Don't make me go, please. And from behind him, a man breaks the ranks of the prisoners. And everyone takes a breath, anxious that this man would be beaten just for breaking ranks and speaking. His name is Maximilian Kolbe. He was known at the prison camp for sharing his food for those who were not as hungry as he was. He was known to give up his blanket to those who were not as cold as he was. Some of the incarcerated Jews there called him the minister of Auschwitz. He'd been beaten numerous times for a stand of faith. Some at the camp called him the Christ of Auschwitz. He was 47 years old when he broke the ranks and he took his cap off respectfully to the commander and he said, please, sir, let me take his place. I am old and this man is young. This man has a wife and children. I have no children and no wife. Please, sir, let me take his place. Kolbe is only six years older than Grinalchek. One month earlier, Maximilian Kolbe, from his imprisonment at Auschwitz, had written a letter to his mother. You remember what Auschwitz looks like, right? 
He'd written a letter to his mother, Dear Mama, June 15, 1941. I'm in the camp at Auschwitz. Everything is well in my regard. Be tranquil about me and about my health because the good God is everywhere providing everything with love. Do you think he was saturated by God's grace? He's in a prison camp with bags of bones of people who are dying every day by the hundreds. And he says, the good God is with us everywhere. Providing everything. He understood, as Ann Voskamp says, that the hard gifts will be for the good. The good gifts will be forever and the best gifts are forthcoming. So the commander in an unconventional moment in prison history allowed the change to take place. And Colby, along with nine others, were escorted to a dog pen made of wire just outside the prison walls to die of starvation in the elements. They were not to be fed or cared for until they were all dead. When the guards would check the pen daily, they said they always found Colby standing in silent prayer in the middle of the men or kneeling and praying for one of the men. Fourteen days passed. All the men in the pen were dead except Maximilian Colbeck. The commandant ordered that he be given a lethal injection of carbonic acid so the pen could be used for other purposes. He died that day in place of Grinalchek. He was the only prisoner among the millions of Auschwitz to ever sacrifice his life for another. That's living out grace, by the way. That's understanding grace and living it out. Maximilian Kolbe died in the place of Grinalchek. Grinalchek, upon his release from the prison camp, lived to be 93 years old. He returned to his wife and place, and he placed a stone in the backyard of his home with a brass plate on it. The brass plate had two words, Maximilian Kolbe. And any time he had visitors or family over, you know who he talked about? Maximilian Kolbe, not about himself. Not about his prison experience, but about the guy that paid it all for him. And he wrote this, Grinalchek wrote this in an interview. Because of Maximilian Kolbe, every breath that I take, everything that I do, every single moment to me is a gift. Because of Maximilian Kolbe, I cannot act frivolously. Every single moment is pregnant with meaning because it was a gift to me from the one who died that I might breathe this breath, that I might embrace this moment. I can never take another moment for granted ever again. You think he got grace? Grinalchek? Oh, absolutely. Francis got it. Man, he knows. That was a grace moment. It hit me like a ton of bricks. And I'll never be the same. And every breath I take is because of what that guy was willing to do. And that guy did it because of what Jesus did for him. He got it. See, we're supposed to be grace givers. We're supposed to be giving out grace. We're the Francis Grunauchek in the story. And a Jew by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth went to the cross, stood in your death camp, and he said, pick me. Let Stan live. Let Danny live. Let Lindsay live. Let Larry live. Let Robbie live. Let Michael live. Let Tracy live. Pick me. And there's this beautiful, beautiful moment where Jesus died in your place. And we're not supposed to let that story get old. You're just not. You say, well, that, that story from the World War II, that's really an old story. It is. But I want to tell you, there's hundreds and hundreds of stories of grace. There's a lady named Victoria Ruvolo. I hope I'm saying that right. 
You can look her up on the internet. Victoria Rivolo. 2004, she was coming home from a recital with her niece, a vocal recital, some roads in upper state New York, and a bunch of kids, we would call them thugs, were out joyriding. They'd stole a bunch of uh, stuff from somebody's car. They'd um, gone into a grocery store and bought a bunch of DVDs, and they bought a frozen turkey. And going down the road, one of the kids decided to pitch this 23-pound frozen turkey out the windshield, out the back window in her oncoming car. And she has no memory of what happened when that 23-pound turkey hit her windshield, shattered the windshield, bent her steering wheel double, and hit her right in the face and shattered every bone it hit. She has plates, titanium plates, holding her face together. She has mesh that holds her eye in place. And she had the chance when those kids were caught to put that boy away for life. 25 years was the minimum they were seeking for him. And she wanted to know his story. When she finally came to, like two months later in the hospital, people started telling her what happened and she started, she went through all kinds of therapy. And so she says, a few years ago driving home, she says life will never be the same. It hit her windshield, it bent the steering wheel in half, shattered every bone in her face. When I look in the mirror, she said, I could see it was me, but my whole face was smashed in and every single bone in my face was broken. I had no idea I'd had 10 hours of surgery and I was shocked when the doctors told me that from now on for the rest of my life I would always have three titanium plates in my left cheek, one in my right cheek, and I'd also have a wire mesh holding my left eye in place because my left eye socket was so badly shattered. Once I got off the medication, she says, I remember lying in the bedroom in my sister's house crying myself to sleep, asking God, why me, God? What did I ever do so wrong and so terrible in my life that I deserved all this to happen to me? cried myself to sleep, but then gradually it began to dawn on me. Perhaps God had allowed me to live through this ordeal for a purpose. The idea that it happened for a reason and that I had, I had saved someone else who might have not been able to survive that crash and it helped me get through the rehab. And at some point she asked to meet with Ryan's lawyers to tell them, I want amnesty for Ryan or at least a lesser sentence. On the day we went to court, I saw this young man walk in wearing a suit which looked like it was three times too big for him. It made him seem so frail. He walked in with his head hung down. He looked so upset with himself. When I saw him there, my heart went out to him. To, to me, he looked like a lost soul. Once the case was over and it was time for him to walk out, he started veering towards me where I was sitting and every court officer was ready to jump on him. They had no idea why he was coming toward me. But as he walked over to where I was sitting and stood in front of me, I saw that all he was doing was crying profusely. He looked at me and said, I never meant for this to happen to you and I pray for you every day. And this is what she writes. Then this motherly instinct came over me. And all I could do was take him in my arms and cuddle him like a child and tell him, listen to her words, just do something good with your life. Take this experience of grace and do something good with your life. A couple of years ago in Charleston, South Carolina, a young white boy sat in a Bible study at a black church, waited through the Bible study to the end of it, and then he executed most of the people in that study. 
He killed them. Now I want you to think about our Wednesday night Bible studies here. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just telling you. I want you to think about what it would be like to be at a Bible study here with us. And the next day, everybody but two people in the building were killed. Because some guy came in and hung out with us. And then just decided, and I hate crime to, to kill us. That's just evil. That's sin. And here's what the church in South Carolina did. If you want another example of grace. Relatives of the Charleston, South Carolina shirt. Church shooting victims gave emotional statements during Dylan Roof's initial court appearance. By the way, in his court appearance, he said, I'm not, I'm not ashamed of what I did. I didn't do anything that I wouldn't do again if I was given the chance. He's not repentant. See, this kid was repentant. Dylan Roof is not repentant. He's actually mocking the people in the court appearance and the judge. And he didn't ask for an attorney, by the way. So here's what they say to him. You took something really precious from me. I'll never talk to her again. The daughter of 70-year-old Ethel Lance, one of the nine people killed in Wednesday's massacre. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. But God forgives you and I forgive you. Felicia Sanders, the mother of the youngest victim, Felicia was 26 years old, or her, her daughter was 26 years old, um, also spoke, every fiber of my body hurts. And I will never be the same. This is the pain of good grace. He carried on the the um, Bible. Uh, he carried on the killings during the Bible study session. We welcome you Wednesday night in our Bible study with open arms. You have killed some of the most beautiful people that I know. As we said in the Bible study, we enjoyed you, but may God have mercy on you. Flanked by two officers in flak jackets. He appeared in court through a closed-circuit television. Roof answered some questions, and here's what she says. I forgive you, and my father's family forgives you, Anthony Thomas said, the husband of the 59-year-old Myra Thompson. But we would like you to take this opportunity to repent, to change your ways. Although my grandfather and the other victims died at the hands of hate, this is proof. Everyone's plea for your soul is proof they lived in love and their legacy will live. The grandson of 74-year-old Daniel Simmons said, So hate doesn't win. A hateful person came to this community with some crazy ideas, writes one of them, that he'd be able to divide us. But all he did was unite us and make us love each other more. For me, I am a work in progress, admitted relative 49-year-old uh, DePayne Middleton doctor. I'm very angry, but we are the family that love built. We have no room for hate, so I have to forgive. That's grace. On Friday evening, Ruth's family, not Ruth, but Ruth's family expressed sympathy to those families and thanked them for the forgiveness. Ruth never did, by the way. So grace doesn't always come back like you think, but it's supposed to always go out. Because you were given that much grace from heaven. Do you understand? We're going to sing a song as we close called Grace Like Rain. And I want you to, I want you to evaluate where you are in your faith today. Is it fresh again? Is it new? Or have you let your eyes get dry and your faith get old and your heart get hard and your prayers get cold? We're just gonna, while we're singing, we're gonna open up these altars and, and, and I'm inviting all of you that want to and, uh, anybody that wants to just come kneel here. Nothing magical, but it's a great place to kneel down and say, God, would you just make grace strong and real to me again? I want to be impacted like Paul. 
I want to change everything in my future to be Christ-centered, grace-saturated. I want to be trafficking in grace this very day when I leave here. Hey, if you've got some commitment things to do, this is a great place to do it. And so I'll be right here. Um, the guys are going to sing and I'll be right here. But we'd love for you to just, just kneel right here and make that fresh for yourself.